Well, as you know, we're, we're completing our two-part series this morning in the sovereignty of God. And the subject this morning is God's sovereignty and our free will. Last week, I mentioned that, uh, in fact, I asked you the question, who is running this planet? Who is controlling what happens on planet Earth? Who's controlling what happens in your life? And, uh, of course, the answer is that God is sovereign. God is ultimately in control. And uh, that often brings about the question, well, then what about our free will? Now, the Bible clearly teaches that we have a free will. We make choices for which we are responsible. And so some people feel that if we have a free will, how then can God be sovereign? You can't have both. And so, so many people push out the idea of the sovereignty of God because of the freedom of our will, our power to choose. And uh, that's why you don't hear much teaching today on the sovereignty of God. The whole emphasis is, is up to you and the choices you make and people and the choices they make. Now, let me just say this. There are many truths in the Bible which seem to be contradicted by other truths in the Bible. For example, do you believe in the deity of Christ? Yes, three of you do. The rest of you are heretics. <laughs> of course, we believe in the deity of Christ, but do you believe in the humanity of Christ? Yes. So how can Jesus be fully God and fully man at the same time? How can two natures dwell in one person. I don't know. I, don't, I can't explain it. And so the temptation is to go with one and push out the other, which is what the cults do. They deny, for example, the deity of Christ because they cannot reconcile the two. Now, just because we cannot reconcile things or we cannot explain how things work together, it doesn't mean to say they're wrong. Amen? Otherwise, we make our mind paramount, our mind God. Anything that can fit into our mind is truth. Anything we can't fit in there, we exclude. And that's not how it is. And so what I'm saying to you today is the Bible teaches the doctrine of the free will of man, but never, never teach that in an absolute way. The Bible doesn't teach it absolutely. It teaches the sovereignty of God, but not absolutely. It teaches the, the free will of man also, but not absolutely. You understand what I'm saying? For example, do you believe that you will have a free will in heaven? Not a trick question. <laughs> yes, of course you will. You're not going to be a robot in heaven. You'll have a free will. But can you sin in heaven? No, the Bible makes that clear. Thank God we're not going to go through this whole thing again. <laughs> there will be no possibility of sin ever again. Praise God. So you have a free will, but not absolutely. You understand what I'm saying? Now, I want, to just, I want you to hold those two things carefully as we go through this subject. It's, a, it's, it's not an easy subject, and it is a subject that will evoke a lot of questions, but I'm just going to take you to the Bible and leave you to go away and check it out with the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures. So let's talk about the unbeliever and their free will. Do they have a free will? 
I remember me saying to an unbeliever once, you don't have a free will. He said, yes, I do. I can do anything I want. I said, that's my point. That's all you can do is what you want to do. You can't do what God wants you to do. You're not free. You can do what you want to do, but you cannot do what you ought to do. You see, that's what the Bible teaches. And that's how you were until the grace of God came upon you. Amen? The Bible says this, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You couldn't live righteously. You were slaves to sin. That's, that's freedom, but it's bondage. Amen? And then, of course, uh, the Bible says that the time came when, when the Spirit of God moved upon us and began to draw us to himself, and, and that allowed us to come to God. But, but until then, we're slaves to sin. Now, we talk about a free will, but when you think about that phrase, the will is not a self-determining agent. Because the will has the power to choose between different options, right? But it's always influenced by the strongest influence. That's the thing. It's not free in the sense that um, it's just free. There's no such thing as a free will. It will always do what the greatest influence brings to bear upon it. For example, on Friday, um, I was going up to Brisbane, driving up to Brisbane, and I could see that I might not have enough petrol to get there and back, right? So I could risk it. I could try it, um, as I probably would have done when I was about 20. <laughs> Did that a few times. And... Uh, or I, what I could do is fill up now. And so the greatest influence was I don't want to be looking around for petrol on the way back at night time on the highway. So there was really no choice to make. The choice was made for me. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because of the greatest influence that came upon me in that situation. So what is the greatest influence upon an unbeliever? The Bible says it's the heart. Whatever is in the heart will be what will influence the will to choose that way. We know this scripture very well. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issue of life. In other words, your whole life flows out of what is in your heart. Your whole life does not flow from your free will. It flows from what is in your heart, because it's your heart that influences your will. What is in the heart of the unbeliever? The Bible says that the unbeliever's heart is enmity against God. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Not will not please God, they cannot. Because their heart is not set that way, it's, it's set prejudiced against God. It's enmity against God. Amen. Let me just give you an illustration. If I hold this Bible and let it go, what's going to happen to it? It's always going to fall down. It's always going to go down. Amen. And that's always going to happen unless another hand comes underneath it and lifts it up. Now that's what happens when we get saved. If it was up to us and our decision, we'd always choose against God. But the grace of God came, comes upon us and lifts us up towards God. 
gives us a heart towards God. Isn't that what the prophet promised under the new covenant? Bruce has been talking about covenants. Ezekiel said that, that God will give us a new heart and a new spirit. A heart that is biased towards God. A heart that is drawn to God. Amen? That's what we get through the grace of God. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. We will always drop that book or that Bible down. We'll always go downwards. Unless the grace of God comes into our lives and lifts us up towards God. Amen. That's why Jesus said, um, sorry, uh, Jesus said, no, we've missed it out. Okay, it doesn't matter. Let me read it to you anyway. Jesus said, therefore, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then he went on to say, therefore, if the Son shall set you free, you will be free indeed. Not just free like the unbeliever, free to do only what he wants to do. You will be free indeed. True freedom is being free to do what God wants you to do. Amen. That's true freedom. And so we see, uh, yes, there is freedom of will in the unbeliever, but not absolutely. In fact, I would go even further. And it is this, that God would even override or restrain a believer's will if it was going to thwart his purpose. God is in control ultimately. Now you see that, for example, when uh, Joseph was arrested, or, or rather captured by his brothers. What did they want to do with him? Kill him. All of them, except for one. They were going to kill him, but he had to step in and sold him as a slave and went down to Egypt. If that didn't happen, God's purpose would never have been fulfilled. God revealed his purpose in the dream that God gave to Joseph, that God was going to lift him up above his brothers. That would have never happened if they killed him there. Amen? But God moved in that situation, restrained them from doing what was in their heart and their will to do, and he was sold to Egypt, and then God's purpose was ultimately fulfilled in that way. Amen? Do you remember when um, Abimelech, took Sarah to be his wife. And then God stepped in and restrained him. He was going to live with her as husband and wife, but God stepped in and said, you touch her, you're a dead man. You remember that? See, yes, man has got a free will, but not absolutely. There is the sovereignty of God, which is the ultimate source of power in this world. Not only does God's um, power sometimes restrain people from doing things, God even constrains them. God even softens their heart to do certain things. For example, it says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Amen? Take, for example, the story of Esther. Beautiful story. The king of Persia um, was offended by something that his wife Vashti had done. And so he divorced her, put her aside, and he wanted to choose another wife. 
It's like a, pa- a beauty pageant, like a like a you know a competition. All the most beautiful women from the empire, the empire, not just even the nation, came, and he had to choose one, one out of all those. And God saw to it that he chose who? Esther. Why? Because he needed her in that palace. As Mordecai later on went on to say, God has called you to the kingdom for such a time as this. Amen? So that he could, she could intervene and save a whole nation from genocide. The whole nation of Israel would have been wiped out unless she was in that strategic position where she could speak to the king on behalf of the nation of Israel. And so the king's heart was in the hands of God. Another example, take when, when uh, Israel went into captivity to Babylon. Seventy years they were there. Seventy years, two generations. By that time they were integrated into that nation. But God had spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet, 70 years before that, that God would bring them back to their land. And yet here they were captives in another land. But what happened is God touched the heart of a new king, a man by the name of Cyrus, a man, incidentally, who was named even before he was born because God is sovereign. Amen? And the Bible says this, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. He went on to issue an edict that Israel could return to their own land. Ezra goes on to say in chapter 7, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. See, the, the hand of God, God is sovereign. Yes, he gives the unbeliever a free will. And they're making many decisions today. But ultimately, God is in control. They can never thwart the purposes of God. Amen? So let's look at the believer. Because if we believe in the sovereignty of God, as I said last week, that God has an eternal purpose, and that purpose will come to pass in our lives, then what's the point of us? Praying, serving, witnessing, preaching, and doing all those things that we do. Now remember last week that I said that we need to see life from two perspectives. There's God's perspective and there's our perspective. They're both true. They're both real. You can't ignore one or the other. Amen? But which is paramount? God's perspective. Of course it is. God's perspective because God is sovereign. God is in control. Now, I want to just look at that as it relates to us to, to give you something to meditate on, to go away and, and, and for it to shape the way that you look at your whole life. And so first of all, I want to say this. Three things I want to say. Number one is that we honor God by acknowledging his sovereignty and submitting to his will. Amen. This should shape our whole attitude towards life. Whatever happens, we know that God is ultimately in control. His way is the best way. He knows what we do not know. He will bring everything about 
to pass according to his will, and we will praise him for that because he's sovereign. James says this, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapour that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Amen? That is honouring God, knowing that God ultimately is in control and is working all things out according to the counsel of his will and his purpose. Amen? And so it should change our attitude towards life. It honours God rather than magnifies the strength and the ability of ourselves and of man. Paul was like that even in his ministry. He says to the Corinthians, but uh, he took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. See, there's his will. I will. I will return to you. But then he clarifies, God willing, if God permits. God is in control. Amen? Amen. And so that's the first thing that I believe that we need to, to keep in mind. And, and, you know, as we go through lives, uh, you know, sometimes things do not happen that we would choose to happen. Sometimes we suffer. Sometimes we go through hardship. But does that mean the bad things happen to us outside of the will of God? The Bible says that he makes all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. How is it that Stephen was stoned to death, James was executed by the sword, Peter was heading the same way, yet he was released miraculously? Because that was the will of God. It was the will of God that Stephen and James should die a martyr's death, which is an honor, by the way. But it was the will of God that, that Peter's ministry was not yet completed. He had very important work to do. And so he says, Peter says, it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So sometimes the will of God even involves suffering but our attitude towards that is not one of complaining, not one of murmuring, but one of giving thanks because he is in control and he is working all things together for our good. Amen? Okay, that's the easy part out of the way. <laughs> now we come to the second example I want to share with you, which is probably the most controversial aspect of the sovereignty of God. And that's in the area of salvation. When you believe in, in, in the sovereignty of God, you learn to see salvation from God's perspective. Salvation is not a hit and miss thing, or depending on what man is going to do. But God is sovereign in this matter of salvation as well. Now, does that mean that we exclude the free will of man? Not at all. The Bible includes both. But ultimately, God is in control. Let me just give you an illustration. Let's just say I bought a plane 
And I'm thinking about the man I'm sitting next to. Does he know the Lord? It's my responsibility to witness to him. I've got a captive audience. But then I might be afraid of witnessing. I might be too tired to witness to him. I might want to do something else like study or, or something like that. So will I, won't I? Is that man salvation? Does it hinge upon whether I'm obedient, whether I witness to him, whether there's an opening or not? Is it all tied up in these human factors? Or was it even God's will that I sit next to him? Or was that an accident? Can you see what I'm saying? But, and yet there is a human element in salvation, without a doubt. Let's look at it. Paul talks about five stages from the human perspective in salvation. Here they are. Salvation from man's perspective. The Bible says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who does the calling? Man does, right? Humans. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe, that's the second thing, in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As, is, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So there's five things there involved from a human perspective. This man must first of all call upon the Lord to be saved. But he can't call upon the Lord unless he believes in the Lord. And he can't believe on, in the Lord unless he first of all hears the gospel. And he can't hear the gospel unless someone speaks the gospel to him. And, and that person can't speak the gospel until, unless God sends them and they're obedient to the sending. So they're all five elements from a human perspective. Can you see that? So there's a lot of variables there and, and, and it seems a lot of uncertainties in this whole thing of salvation. So what does God just stand by and, oh, well, we'll see what happens. We'll see who's there in the end. Is that his plan for salvation? No, because Paul, two chapters earlier, spoke about salvation from the divine perspective, and there are five stages there. Let's have a look at those. God's perspective. Paul says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. There are some who are called according to his purpose. Amen. And then he says this, For whom he foreknew. Now we're going back into eternity now. We're not sitting on a plane. We're not even in earth time. This is back in eternity. Whom he foreknew. That word foreknew does not mean that God knew ahead of time what would happen. The word to foreknow means actually to set one's love upon. You know, like God said to Israel, you only have I known out of all the nations of the earth. What you mean, God didn't know about Babylon? God wasn't aware of Egypt? God wasn't aware of Assyria? It doesn't mean a knowledge of. It means I've set my love upon you like Adam knew his wife Eve. An intimate love towards a person. 
Or let's put it in the words of Ephesians. God chose you before the foundation of the world. Very clear. Amen? Whom he foreknew, these, all these ones that he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Called in the sense of he made sure we heard the gospel and we heard it effectually. And those he called, these he justified. And those he justified, these he also glorified. When are we going to be glorified? In eternity. Amen? After this age. So God's perspective is not limited to time. It starts in eternity and it finishes in eternity. God is much bigger than time and space. Amen? And so Paul says that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's move on. Jesus prayed this. All, now just look at these words carefully. They either mean what they say or they mean nothing at all. All that the Father gives me will come to me. There were ones that were given to Christ in eternity, from, from eternity. And Jesus said, all that the Father has given to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. In other words, I will never lose any that the Father has given to me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, as we go through these scriptures, you know, there's a lot of scriptures that, that talk about our salvation from God's perspective as being planned from eternity, and he is ensuring will come to pass. Now, we react against that because we say, yeah, but what about this one, and what about that, and what about our choice, and where do we fit in, and so on. That's what I used to do. In fact, I used to argue strongly about the very things I'm preaching to you now about. I used to argue against them strongly in Bible school, and when I got out of Bible school, because I would bring out all the other scriptures, you know, somebody else who did that was George Muller. Hands up if you know George Muller. Many, about half of you know of George Muller. He started the, um, the orphanages in Bristol, fed tens of thousands of people miraculously. Every day was a miracle from God, a miracle from heaven. And uh, he used to argue against what I'm preaching this morning. Then he studied the Word of God and, and, and he discovered that the scriptures which teach what I'm saying are four times more than the scriptures that seem to say the opposite, that it's not in God's hands, that the whole of salvation is in man's hands. And then when he studied those scriptures which seem to teach that it's all in man's hands, he saw that many of them do not even say what they are often represented 
as saying. And we'll see that in one or two cases as we go along. Let's just move on a bit here. In Jesus' prayer at the end of his ministry, he spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. I pray, he says, for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. Now, you go away and pray about that because either they mean what they say or they mean something completely different which I do not understand. But it seems to me very clearly that God is saying there that a number of people were given to Christ before the foundation of the world and God is sovereign and will ensure that every one of these come to Christ and none of them will be lost. Jesus is talking to the Jews here and he answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. And notice the order there. Jesus didn't say, you are not of my sheep because you do not believe. He said, you, do, you, are not, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. See, often we, we use terms because we've been conditioned, because the sovereignty of God has never been taught. We use words and terms that are not even in the Bible regarding our salvation. We talk about making our decision. Do you know that word is not found in the Bible concerning salvation? But you'll find a, a lot of references to where God has made his decision for you. And you are here because God has made his decision for you from eternity. It's quite amazing. Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Let's get this the right way around. Amen? Paul says, we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, because uh, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, Jesus said, but as many as received him. Ah, you see, they received him. Let's read on. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Salvation is of the Lord, dear friends. It's all of his grace. And if you read on it, it says, so then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. You read that whole chapter, chapter 9. We could have, we could have just expanded that and left it at that. It is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. You say, that's not fair. Well, in the same chapter, God says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. See, when people talk about it not being fair, straight away it indicates to me, you don't understand then the meaning of grace. Grace has got nothing to do with fair. Amen. If you want fair, 
as the psalmist said. What did he say? I forget now. <laughs> he said, if you, Lord, should mark iniquity, who would stand? If God gave us what we deserve, none of us would be here today. Salvation's got nothing to do with fear. But it's got a lot to do with the grace of God. And the grace of God is that God hasn't given us what we deserve. He's given us instead his mercy. It's of him who shows mercy. At the end of Paul's first missionary journey, he says, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, and they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. We're not just dealing with one or two scriptures here. This is the pattern all the way through the Gospels, the Acts, and the Epistles. Paul speaks about himself being a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect. You know what elections are all about. We have plenty of them. You will go to the polls and you will choose someone to represent you as your your politician. Is that right? You choose. It's a democracy. Well, you are God's elect. God chose you. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Now, some people say, you know, this this thing then, it means it doesn't matter what we do. If it's all up to the sovereignty of God and, and what his purpose happens, then what's the point of witnessing? What's the point of praying? And, and so this thing works against evangelism. Does it work against evangelism? No, it doesn't. Because you cannot have the sovereignty of God absolutely to the exclusion of our responsibility. God chooses through the foolishness of preaching to save the lost. Someone has still got to go and preach. They've still got to hear. They have to believe. Amen? But God is sovereign in in the matter of salvation. Now, I don't believe it does militate against salvation. It certainly didn't in the life of Paul. Um, When he was in Corinth, uh, he was very discouraged. There was a lot of opposition. He was probably thinking about leaving town. Then the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. That's what, is, to me, is the greatest encouragement in preaching the gospel, is that God has chosen people to be saved, and they will be saved. Let us just be faithful and preach, knowing that God will save them. The results are not our problem. But how do I know that there will be people saved? Because Jesus has not yet come back. Why has he not yet come back? Because the fullness of the Gentiles has not yet come in. And so we go forth preaching and preaching. You know, I was talking to uh, Ros and David in the week about David Livingston. Uh, some regard him as the greatest post-apostolic missionary. David Livingston, who went to Africa, and he went to interior Africa and opened up Africa uh, in a way that uh, was not open before. It was dark, it was, it was unexplored. David Livingston was known for three things. Number one, he was a great missionary. He preached the gospel. But you know he only saw one soul saved? 
Only one soul. And that, that was a, a chief of a tribe who kept backsliding, <laughs> going back to his old ways. But he's also known as a trailblazer. He opened up what was a dark, closed continent and blazed the trail for others to go and preach the gospel. And thirdly, he, he was one of the first ones to stand against slavery. And he dealt the first death blow to the slave trade. But you know, when, when, when uh, David Livingston died, he died actually in North Zambia. And he was so loved by the Africans that they were going to take, you know, the British were going to take his body back to England. But the Africans took his heart out and buried it in, in, North, Africa, in North Zambia. And then it took them 11 months. First of all, the natives carried his body on their shoulders to the east coast of Africa. And then he was put on a boat and went back to the UK. 11 months. And he was buried in Westminster Abbey. Quite amazing. Quite an incredible contrast. Living in the deepest, darkest, unexplored Africa and buried with all the dignitaries in, in, in Westminster Abbey. What was it that kept him going, even though he only saw one soul saved? What kept him going was written on the epitaph of his grave. And it inspired another man, another man who was also a Scottish missionary. His name was Peter Cameron Scott. And he was so discouraged, he was thinking about giving up the ministry. And it was as he walked past the grave of David Livingstone and he saw what was written over his grave that he was inspired to go back again and be faithful in preaching the gospel. And what was written were the words of Jesus which said, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Just keep going. There are other sheep that I have. They will come to Christ through the preaching of the gospel. And so that inspired him to keep going. You see, some people, one of the most common texts that's used against what I'm trying to share with you, and you need to take these things away and pray about them, search the scriptures for yourself and decide for yourself. I'm not forcing these upon you. I'm just sharing what my understanding of the scripture is regarding the sovereignty of God in salvation. But many people say, you know, Kim, but God is not willing that any should perish. You know that scripture? God is not willing that any should perish. This is another classic example of where people take a verse out of its context. What does it actually say? Let's read the whole verse. The Lord is not slack. He's talking about why isn't the Lord coming back? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slack, slackness, but is long-suffering, what? Toward us, towards the believers, towards the saints, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is patient. God is long-suffering. He's waiting until the last one comes in. That's why the Bible speaks about the fullness of the Gentiles. There is a number known only to God. When the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then Jesus will come back. If that verse doesn't mean that, it's crazy. 
If it means the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering, take out the words towards us, not willing that any should perish. Well, that's crazy because every generation he's been waiting, millions have been perishing. Millions have been rejecting the gospel and going to hell. So that's not working, is it? It doesn't make sense. Do you see what I'm saying? But if God has got a number that he's chosen, given to Christ before the foundation of the world, and he's long-suffering, waiting for those to come till the last one comes in, then that makes a lot of sense. It's clear that Paul, uh, Peter is referring to Christians. He says in the first verse, Simon, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith. He's writing to the believers. This is a reference to them, towards us. He's long-suffering towards us, towards the church. Praise God. Amen. Okay, there's, there's a bit of food for thought there. Let's quickly close. Give me five minutes, can you? As I just share another important area where the sovereignty of God has transformed my life and my approach to this particular area of the Christian life, and it's the area of prayer. Prayer does not change God's mind, but it aligns us with his purpose. You know, a lot of prayer today seems to be pleading and begging with God to give us things that we want. Amen? Can you identify with that? And, and somehow we've got this impression that, you know, we might just get lucky. We might get through somehow and get those things that we ask for. We never ask, why is it that some prayers are answered and some are not? In fact, we even go further and we've got this idea that if we can get more people praying for us, that's got a better chance. You know? Someone might get the message through. So get more. I remember once when we were pastoring at Tugan, one lady in the church there was very excited because this thing was circulating that something big, this is how it was shared in the church, something big is going to happen on the third day of the third month of 2003. That actually, incidentally, originated in the New Age movement. Fact. Anyway, it got into the church and everybody, the, the, the idea was if we could get one million people praying, this thing, and we didn't know what it was that we were praying for, but this big thing was going to happen. I mean, how crazy, like, like, it's like Martin Luther said to Erasmus, who was big, very strong on the human will. He said, your God is too human, too human. You're thinking in human terms. Come on, get up here where God is. Do you think God is looking at you like an angel has just come in? Hey, we better do something. They've got a million people out there banging at the door. They mean business. We better cough up. Come on, friends. Our God is too human. Would you agree? What did Jesus teach about prayer? When you pray, say, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So prayer is learning to align ourselves with the will of God. Now, this used to really, um, I couldn't work this out. Jesus said in this whole context of prayer, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts, note that word good gifts to your children, 
how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things, good things to those who ask him? Amen? Now, in Luke's version, it says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What don't we have the Holy Spirit? And so I, I, I could not marry those two things together. Let me ask you this question before I give you the answer. <laughs> Do your children know what's best for them? If you left it up to your children, they would have chocolate for breakfast, ice cream for lunch, and M&Ms for dinner. <laughs> they don't know what's good for them, right? They don't understand about broccoli and spinach and all those things. Amen? You do because you're a parent. Now, we do not know sometimes what is good for us. And that's why we, God will give the Holy Spirit. Why? Paul gives the answer. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we ought to pray for. Uh, what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And it goes on to say that the God who searches the hearts knows what is uh, the, the Holy Spirit is praying according to his will. Because the Holy Spirit knows God's will in this situation. And so when we pray, we bring our needs to God, but we say, Lord, let your will be done in this situation. We can ask for certain things. We might think we know best, but we don't always know best. Amen? It gets crazy. It gets really crazy because, uh, uh, you know, I, I remember this teaching that was going, and still is going around now. Your prayers are not being answered because you are not specific enough. You've got to tell God exactly what you want. And so a lady looking for a husband, starts to write down her specific list. I want a rich man. I'd like him to be extremely good looking, very athletic, 15 years younger than me, earning pots of money, and a spiritual giant. And when he comes home at night, he will do all the housework while I sit on the sofa eating chocolates, <laughs> watching TV. There it is, Lord. Reminds me of a, I think I've told you the story of a, a man that went for a job interview. And the, in the interview, the employer said, well, what would you like to the, the candidate, the applicant? And he said, well, I'd like 150000 a year. I'd like to work four, days, uh, four hours a day with one hour lunch and eight weeks annual leave. The employer looked at him and said, well, look, I'll tell you what, why don't we give you all of that, but also instead of giving you 150000 a year, we'll give you 250000 a year. The guy looked at him and said, you're joking. He said, yeah, but you started it. <laughs> Friends, you're joking. Some of your prayers, you're joking. Get real. You know, we think we know what's best for us. Here's another prayer. God, your will be done in my life. 
Oh no, God doesn't understand what's good for me. No, we don't understand what's good for us. He does. Amen? Another story I heard of a couple that were walking along the road, husband and wife, they were both 55 years of age, and somebody came up and said, here, rub to the man, he said, rub this bottle and the genie will come out and give you one wish. And he thought, oh, it's a joke, but he rubbed the genie, and with uh, the bottle out come the genie. One wish. And he kind of looked a bit sheepishly at his wife. He said, well, he said, I would like my wife to be 30 years younger than what she is. 30 years younger than me. So, poof. And he looked at his wife, and she's still 55. But he was 85. <laughs> Be careful what you ask for, friends. I'm so glad God does not give us everything we ask for. But He gives us what's good for us. How do you know what's good for you? You don't. I don't. But He does. And I'm content to say, Your will be done. To bring our needs to God. You know, sometimes in prayer, I think it was David Rich that said this, sometimes in prayer, God changes things because we pray. See, this is the human part. Don't stop praying. Sometimes God changes things because you prayed. Secondly, sometimes God empowers us to go forward and change things. Think about that. God's not going to do it all. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. You go forward. The sea will part. Amen? So sometimes God will change things. Sometimes he'll empower you to change things. Sometimes, number three, he'll change you. He won't change things that you're asking him to change, but he will change you as your will comes into alignment with his purpose. Amen? Do I believe in the sovereignty of God? Yes, I do. Do I believe it absolutely at the exclusion of Man's will? No, I don't. Do I believe in the free will of man? Yes, I do. Do I believe it absolutely so that God's will is set aside? No, I don't. I believe that they are both truths that are taught in the Scripture. But I do believe that God's sovereignty is paramount. God is in control of your life and my life. And even though I can't understand some of the things that seem to be very clear to me from the Scripture, doesn't make them wrong because I don't understand them or I don't think they're fair. We submit to them by faith and leave the outworking of them to Him. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank You this morning for this time we've had over these last two weeks just reminding ourselves that You are God and You are sovereign. You are in control and we can rest and be secure in that knowledge that you're working all things according to the counsel of your will. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit will continue to open our eyes and our understanding to these truths and many other truths that we are yet to see in your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you.